Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis in chapter 2. Read from verse 4 through to verse 25. Let's pray as we read God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that every word comes from you and is living and operative. And I pray, Father, as we read your word, we'd have the Holy Spirit help to read it and to digest it, that it would give us guidance to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon, and it was the one which flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bdellium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And may God bless this reading of his holy and inerrant word. Amen. 
Genesis 2 is the picture of the good life, of the way things are supposed to be and the way things will be once again. And in verse 4, we're introduced, if you remember, to the first of the ten told-off sections. So after the opening prelude to the symphony in which God creates the heavens and the earth and all things in seven days, we now begin with the first of those ten generations or ten Hebrew told-offs. And these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you notice as I read it, the reversal of the order? In verse 4 at the beginning, it's heavens and earth, and then earth and heavens. And perhaps, just perhaps, we're moving from the cosmic scene of how God created all things to focusing on the earth. We see in particular how God made the man and the woman and the garden and the trees. And we see that it's very good. We see that the natural world is good. There's a striking image that the Lord planted a garden. He provided for every shrub and bush. The picture is a beautiful picture. Streams coming out from the earth to water the ground. Some kind of underground aquifer. Birds are flying, fish are swimming. And I was uh, drawn to what Louis Armstrong sung, What a Wonderful World. It is a good world that the Lord God has made. The trees are growing tall and strong. The trees are bearing fruit. The animals came peaceably before Adam that he might name them. Adam doesn't run from the animals. They don't run from him. They come gently before him so that he might name them one by one. It is the world as God created it in its wonder and its splendor. The creation of man is good. Man is made from the dust of the earth. He is on the one hand quite literally the dust of the earth, but on the other he is quite literally the crown of all creation. If you could but always remember those two things are true about you. Remember Psalm 103. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. That is who you are. You came from the ground. The man did and then the woman from the man. But we're not just dust. We are the crown of creation. We are the pinnacle. We are the climax of the creation week. Made in God's image and likeness. We alone are brought to life by the breath of God. So we are dependent upon God. And at the same time, we have from him this God-given mobility that no other creature has except for man. Perhaps Winston Churchill got it right when he said, we are all worms, but I do believe I'm a glowworm. And that kind of sort of sums up the human condition. The creation of man is good. Work is good. And we saw last week how creation comes to its finality with rest, with finishing and sitting back to enjoy and rest. Rest was the invention of God, but work also was the invention of God. 
worst contrary to belief is not the result of the fall. We see that the way in which we experience work has been the result of the fall. But even before the fall, man was given work to do. Tasks, responsibilities and labours. And that is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult when you fall ill or you have a chronic illness. Or maybe by getting older and you're not able to do the things that you once did. There is a real sense of loss, isn't there? There's a real sense of loss because God made us to be active. God made us to work. He put Adam into the garden that he might be God's sub-gardener underneath God. It took effort, it took skill, but it was joyous work. Adam would have looked forward to going to work. No broken tractors, no thorns, no thistles, no computer crashes. Don't wait down too long for that day. No anxious deadlines. No bad bosses, no incompetent employees, no workroom, tea room gossip, just an honest day's work under the gaze, the smiling face of God. He made us to work. Work is good. We came to church to hear James say that work is good. The garden is good. And look at the garden more particularly. The garden is going to be surrounded by cherubim. Just later, the Ark of the Covenant will be guarded by the cherubim on top. The temple was built as a garden with carved cherubim, with palm trees, with open flowers, with a night sky. Man was a priest who would work in the temple to honour the holiness of God, to enjoy his presence. The imagery is the same. The garden is good, the garden is a temple. And in the middle of the garden, there are two trees. We have the tree of life, symbolizing that men and women will live and move and have their being in God. He is the source of their first life. He will be the source of their ongoing life. In other words, we do not live unto ourselves or by ourselves. That is the point of the tree of life. Only by feeding on the food that God provides will Adam and Eve have ongoing physical, moral, spiritual life. You must eat of the food that God prepares for you if you are to live. And then there is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a good tree, but man must not eat from it. Why? Why? What does verse 17 mean? That the tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Why? What is wrong with moral discernment? Well, knowledge here means experiencing a decision between two alternatives. Knowing the choice of good and evil. In Genesis 3, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. God means that Adam knew for himself what it was to stake out his own path. The tree was a symbol of moral autonomy, the right to decide for ourselves what is best for us. Eating it was not knowledge just to gain information, but it was the experience of choosing for yourself what is good and what is evil. That is why the tree was off limits. 
It was a test of obedience. God was saying, will you listen to me? Will you trust me? I have provided a tree of life. Will you acknowledge that your whole life depends on me? I am the Lord, your director, your creator, your sustainer, your lawgiver, your ruler. Listen to me. You can eat from any tree of the garden, but that tree you may not eat from. Why? Because you do not have the right to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. So eat freely from the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of God's good and evil. If only we would trust God's generosity. You see, at least part of the first sin is a failure to believe that God is good. And what God says for us is good. A failure to believe in divine generosity. That he does not withhold one good thing from those he loves. We see this in our own spirit. We see it in our children. If you were to tell them you can have anything you want for dessert except one thing, what do they want for dessert? That one thing. Because they think that the thing that you're not letting them have is the, must be the best thing. Because they don't trust you. They think that you're withholding something good. It, it, it is doubting parental goodness and wisdom just as Adam and Eve did not believe that God was good. And if God said it, it was good. They thought that God said that you mustn't eat from that tree because he was withholding something from them. Maybe you think, why would he give me sexual desires that I cannot act upon? We fail to see God's generosity around us. So it is into this scene of paradise is an ominous forewarning, a foreshadowing of what it will be if man tries to be God. And all around us, we see the effects of the fall. We see men, women, boys and girls trying to be God. If, if, if man tries to assert his moral autonomy by choosing for himself what is good and what is evil and not accepting that that belongs to God. On that day, there will be death, physical death, more importantly, spiritual death, an end to all that is symbolized in this tree of life until God will make a way to redeem his people. We get to the bad news next week, by the way. But here the focus is on what is good, the goodness of work, the goodness of the world, the goodness of the garden, the goodness of nature, beauty and delight, delight everywhere on display in Eden. God looked and behold it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. Which is why verse 18 is so striking. Because even before the fall, even in paradise, there was one thing which if left undone would not have been good. It was not good that the man should be alone. We don't know, we do not know if Adam was lonely or if he felt isolated. God himself says it is not good. So obviously in chapter 2 we're zooming in 
on the creation. In chapter 1 it says he made them man and made them male and female, and after 6 he pronounces it very good. This is before the declaration of very good at the end of day 6. There is a moment when there is a man and no woman, and God says it is not yet good. Every other aspect of creation had its counterpart. The day had its sun, the night had its moon, the waters, the fish, the sky, the birds, the ground, the animals, and the man did not have a woman. Now that does not mean that our lives are incomplete without marriage. We know from the examples of Jesus and Paul that while marriage is glorious, a creation ordinance, it is not the norm for all. Singleness is precious in the eyes of the Lord. But the focus in Genesis 2 is on the goodness of God making them male and female. I want you to notice three things that are good. The sameness, the difference, and the union. The sameness, the difference, and the union. The sameness. Both man and woman are created in the image of God. And this has profound implications that were being radical for Moses' day. None of Israel's neighbours in the ancient world had a separate account for the creation of woman. No one elevates the status of woman, women as the Genesis account does. And we see that from the very first chapters, that the woman is not a lesser creature, she is not an inferior being, she has equal access to God, she is equal in worth and dignity. 1 Peter 3 verse 7, in Christ we are the co-heirs of the grace of life. Male and female were given joint rule over creation. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. The creation mandate was not just given to the man, but to the man and the woman. Together, God blessed them, plural. God told them, plural, to have dominion over every living thing. So the male Adam and the female Adam, remember, Adam is the Hebrew word for man, yet it is also going to the name of the first male. The male Adam and the female Adam were not made superior and inferior. No, they were created in the same image, meant to be interdependent. And if you go down to chapter 2, verse 23, Adam exclaims, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Just track with me for a minute. It's a wonderful bit of the Lord's providence that the play of words in Hebrew comes out in the play of words in English. In Hebrew, she shall be called Ishtar because she was taken out of Ish. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. A woman is a female Adam, a womb man, a womb man, a human being with a womb to nurture life. Some people today are spelling woman different. It is a trend amongst, unfortunately, institutions to spell woman W-O-M-X-N. Because what it is saying is no, 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 no. We're not going to have the word man 
in your name wins. That, that even the organization TEDx, which does TED Talks, refers to winning as W-O-M-X-N. I don't even know how to say it, and I'm not going to insult women by trying to say it either. And it is wrong, and it is out of pattern with Scripture. We are meant to see something about our mutual interdependence, that Isha comes out of Ish, just as woman comes out of man. And we lose all verbal recognition that the woman comes from the man. The man was irre irreversibly connected to the woman. Think about this, it's, it's glorious. It's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11. In the Lord, woman is not in independent of man, nor man of woman. Because a woman was made from a man, and man is made from woman. So rather than wanting to divide man against woman, the Bible wants to show interdependence. If you are breathing this morning, you were born from a woman. Fact. Fact. Every woman has her, her origin ultimately as Eve did from the side of man. She came from man. And every man has his origins from a woman, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So we celebrate their sameness. We celebrate it. We affirm it. We celebrate it. Their equality, their interdependence is very glorious. Secondly, the difference. Their distinction is good. Now even though biology, neuroscience, embryology point to genetics, point to all sorts of innate differences between men and women. We know many, many voices in our world despise any notion of sexual distinctions or gender difference. It's forming a large part even of the election in America. Our world is rejecting what God says. And in fact, I, the way I use those two words interchangeably is found problematic by most people today. Or maybe the categories are so fluid as to have no meaning whatsoever. I do not have to tell you how confused and messed up our world is. That on the one hand, they want to say men and women. There is nothing different. There is nothing that one cannot do than the other. How dare you have male sports or female sports? How very dare you? And how dare you point to a distinction, a difference in role or relationship between men and women? We eradicate all distinctions. And yet we celebrate like crazy every time it's the first woman to do this. If there was a, if there was a woman president elect, elected, which, which they might, well, no, if there was a woman president elected, they would, they would send a rocket up to Mars in celebration. The first woman to be the president of America. So at the same time, there is no distinction, but absolutely we must put the two in opposite corners from each other. Our world is stupid. Our world is illogical. Our world is confused. Notice within their joint rule, the man and woman were given different tasks and created in different realms. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Adam was created outside of the garden and charged with cultivating it and protecting it. A protection under which the woman was meant to flourish. I only remember one line, one line from my premarital class, and it was where I was told, James, you have to provide the atmosphere in which Rita can flourish. I, that's the only line I remember. The man was created outside the garden. Eve was created in, within the garden, suggesting, as one author puts it, a special relationship to the inner world of the garden. The creation mandate, remember, filling the earth, subduing it, have dominion. It applies to both sexes, but asymmetrically. That means that it applies to each in a different way. The man is endowed with greater biological strength. Men are created with greater strength than average. It's just a fact. So it makes sense that the man is fitted especially for tilling the soil, for taming the garden, while the woman possessing within her, again, biologically, factually, undeniably, possessing within her the capacity to cultivate new life, is fitted especially for filling the earth, tending the communal aspect of the garden. Now, in teasing out some of this, we need to distinguish between the Bible's pres prescriptions and then its postures and its patterns. What I'm dealing with here are largely not prescriptions. Rather, what we have are certain postures and patterns, meaning here is the design in which God made man and woman. And though it is sometimes frustrated by sin, always frustrated by sin, yet we're meant to flourish in embracing these postures and patterns. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 makes the point that man was created before the woman. It's one of the reasons Paul gives for why a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. And it often seems strange, but first the point is not that he made, Ad it's not that he made Adam first and so he must like Adam best, or Adam is the most important. Rather, the order matters because it indicates Adam's position in the creation narrative as priest and protector. And Eve's position as coming under the man's protection, made from his side to be protected and made from his side to be his support. This is the point made explicit in verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. Eve was created from man equal in worth she was also created for man, verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, helper is not a demeaning term. You know who is called often in the Old Testament as helper? God. Exodus 18, Psalm 33, Psalm 146. The word is Ezer, Ebenezer, help, Ebenahar, stone of help, Etzer. Helper is a functional term, not a demeaning one. So just as God helps his people, so the role of woman to relationship to her husband is that of a helper. In verse 18, a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. We tend to psychologically, you know, psychologi I can't, you know, make it psychological 
Adam's aloneness. And perhaps well-meaning wedding homilies do this, and we interpret helper along the lines of comfort and companionship. And that is not inappropriate. That is one aspect of the term. But helper cannot be divorced from the broader concerns for the creation mandate. It was not good for the man to be alone because by himself he could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is why I, I actually rejoice at Prince William's wedding that they actually said that before the wedding, that, w that marriage was for the procreation of children. Because here we see the complementarity of male and female. If, if Adam's aloneness was simply psychological, if, if, if Adam only needed a companion, God would have created a black Labrador. God would have created a black Labrador, and I can tell you that, that that's the truth. Because a black Labrador is a better companion than, mo than, than most human beings. But if he just needed help to till the garden, why not make a muscle-bound man to help alongside him? Or give Adam a gift of oxen, or a fraternity of manly friends. We had a great tea in theology yesterday, by the way. It was absolutely, it was absolutely wonderful. I thought it was really good. Kevin Roy led the discussion on revival. Um, so, there is, so there is a place for fraternity of men. There's a place for a gathering of women, all of which is very, very useful. It could have been delightful, but none of them would have been a helper fit. A helper corresponding to him. Because none of that helps the man to fulfill his mandate of producing and rearing children. If man came is to have dominion, on the earth, there must be a man to work the garden and there must be a woman to be his helpmate. And notice a few other things as we talk about their difference, their distinction. Adam is reckoned as the head and the representative of the couple. Adam is given the initial command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in verses 16 and 17, not these. Eve is tempted by the serpent, commits the initial crime. Adam is addressed first because Adam is the federal head of the human race. Why is it when Eve actually technically sinned first, as Paul makes the argument in Romans 5, that sin came into the world and was imputed through one man, through Adam? Because Adam sinned and Eve sinned, because Eve's sin was a failure on Adam's part. When he took an ape, Adam, not Eve, was the federal head of the human race. The man was given responsibility to name in every living creature. It was part of his priestly role, exercising dominion. Twice he named the woman in verse 23 when he calls her Ishtar, for she was taken out of Ish. And in verse three, verse, chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, for she is the mother of all living. Adam, in other words, is given a position of leadership. This is authority as it was meant to be exercised. Man was given the priest-like task of maintaining the holiness of the garden. In sum, the man and the woman were created in different ways. Genesis 1 describes the mating of male and female as a generic act of creation. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, while the Lord God built the woman 
from the rib he has taken from the man. So not surprisingly, the man is tasked with tending to the health and vitality of the ground to which, from which he came. Part of what I want you to see is God's order and design. And that the New Testament's rules and exhortations regarding men and women and the church and the home are not arbitrary or random, but they have everything to do with the sort of people that God made men and women to be. Man came from the ground, and his chief responsibility is to do with the ground. The woman comes from the man, not surprisingly is tasked with helping the man from which she came. The way in which one was created suggests the special work they will do in the wider world. The man in the establishment of the external world of industry. The woman in the nurture of the inner world of the family that will come from her and her helpmate. These are not prescriptions. These are not saying a woman cannot have a job outside of the home. Look at Proverbs 31. The woman is active. She's an entrepreneur. She's selling. She's buying. She's staying up all night. These are not exact formulas. You may do this. You may not do that. But it's worth noting the way that God made the man and the woman in different realms with different tasks. That's their posture, the pattern laid out in Genesis and throughout the rest of Scripture. What I want you to see is that the sameness of man and woman, man and woman is good, but the difference is good. And thirdly, their union is good. Look at what man says in verse 23. All the animals have come before him. He's named them. God says, no, that is not it. And, and Adam recognizes that is not it. When Adam sees Eve, he's like to coin a phrase, blown away. This is it. The first poem in the Bible is a love poem. The first recorded words in human history the first thing any human being ever says is a man delighting in his wife. The two come together to make one flesh. Adam's son, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Quite literally, this person, this Ishar, came out from this Ish. Men and women came from the same being. They were, they were meant for each other. Not that one dissolves into the other, but the two may become one. Marriage, and listen carefully, must be and only can be between a man and a woman. Because marriage is not just a union of two persons, but in a profound way, the reunion of a complementary pair. It's God's design. Marriage our world wants to define marriage as two people who love each other, as people who have a special relationship with each other, and a closeness that they then express in a sexual way. That is not how the Bible defines mar marriage. The Bible says marriage is between an isha and an ish. It has to be a womb man and a man. That is marriage because it's a reunion. You're the sort of person who was taken from the sort of person that I am. You are my rib, you are my isha, and so we come together in a reunion of a complementary pair, fitted to be fruitful. You can't reduce marriage to procreation, 
but, and we know on the other side of the fall that many cannot have children, but marriage is the relationship with a man and the woman ought to produce offspring in fulfillment of the divine mandate. John Calvin says something was taken from Adam in order that he might embrace with greater benevolence the part of himself. Adam lost a rib, but he gained a far richer rib. Um, John Calvin said that he, since he obtained a faithful associate of life, we now saw himself, who had before been imperfect, rendered complete in his wife. Calvin said he's rendered complete in his wife. Well, Matthew Henry, the Puritan, says this, although it's not the best exegesis, it's lovely theology. The woman was not made out of his head to top him, or out of his feet to be trampled on, but out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Isn't that beautiful? It's not great exegesis, but it's beautiful theology. In marriage, the man leaves his family and holds fast to his wife, verse 24. Now, real quickly, with everything that we've seen about the man being the head, the man being the federal head, the woman being his helper, we do not expect it to therefore say the woman leaves her parents and holds fast to her husband. In a rich and significant metaphysical sense, the man leaves his father and mother to hold fast to his wife. Surely the helper leaves her family to join her husband, but we're told the opposite, which makes sense when we realize that sexual differentiation is not about first-place man, second-place woman, but is about order and design. The, the inner world of the garden is of chief concern to woman, radiating out from the family to shape by the help and nurture of the woman. So I do not think it's a stretch to say Emotional intimacy, communion, are fostered and formed in a unique, unique way by women. And in such a relational sense, her, her family order takes precedence over the man. The woman is the one through who the bonds of relationship and communion are fostered. The husband is often sort of along for the ride, and I'm glad my wife has friends so I can have some friends too. But of all the things that are good in the garden, God spends the most time showing us how the design of male and female is good. Their co-equality, but their difference, is what makes them coming together in one flesh so beautiful. It is a one flesh union fitted for the purpose of creation that is to be fruitful and multiply. Why is the sexual act regarded as the consummation that they might fulfill the creation mandate. Not all of us are married. Some of us will not be married. Some of us will have painful experiences. Some of us mourn in a spouse who is no longer with us. But we see how significant it is. Life in the garden is good, a paradise, the way things were supposed to be. The land was good. Creation was good. Work was good. But most importantly, male and female marriage was good. A perfect innocence, naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve were naked before each other and God. They had nothing to hide. No shame, no embarrassment. Fully upright, an honourable, perfect relationship. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Perfect relationship, man with God. 
male with female, perfect worship, perfect works, perfect love. That is what we long for, that is what we return to, because at the very other end of the Bible, we have another wedding. The Bible starts with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding, and it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there, as we're ushered into a new heaven and a new earth, they're given white linen robes. It speaks to the same reality, clean, unafraid, washed, redeemed. Heaven grants us the return to innocence. It is the same idea in the garden. They stood unashamed. None of us enjoys naked and unashamed as they did in the garden. But all of us, if we know the Lord Jesus, will enjoy the white robes and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The beautiful story of redemption is that you and I can be at the final wedding. Because the union of the husband and the wife is giving way to a greater union, a more important union, one that does not depend on marital status and whether God finds for you a husband or wife, but depends on faith and repentance as the bride of Christ is joined to the groom and we are his and he is May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen. Uh, we're going to say the words of Vernon Hyam's hymn as we close, Great is the Gospel of our Glorious God. Let's say this, these words of this wonderful hymn together. Great is the Gospel of our Glorious God, where mercy met the anger of God's rod. A penalty was paid and pardon bought, and sinners lost at last to him were brought. Oh, let the praises of my heart be thine, for Christ has died that I may call him mine, that I may sing with those who dwell above, adoring, praising Jesus, King of love. Great is the mystery of godliness, great is the work of God's own holiness, it moves my soul and causes me to long for greater joy than to the earth belong. O oh, let the praises of my heart be thine, for Christ has died that I may call him mine, that I may sing with those who dwell above, adoring, praising Jesus, King of love. The Spirit vindicated Christ our Lord, and angels sang with joy and sweet accord. The nations heard a dark world flamed with light when Jesus rose in glory and in might. Oh, let the praises of my heart be thine.